Welcome to this week's issue of our podcast. And this week, I'm delighted to be joined by an old friend, someone who spends their career selling sovereign bonds. Jim Croft works at one of the big banks and is very much focused on sovereign bonds issued by emerging markets. He's here to tell us a little bit about the bond trade for those of us who, who don't know. But also, for those of you listening, you'll probably be aware that Zambia just this week, in fact, in a conference call with bondholders on Tuesday, Zambia's finance minister made an appeal for a suspension on the interest payments that they make to their bondholders. So it's very topical. And I thought that I knew just the man to come and talk us through sovereign bonds and particular developments this week and generally in the context of this year. The indebtedness of all countries, but African countries, has heightened and where everyone's debt sustainability has got worse. So, Jim, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So, you trade in emerging market debt. Tell us what this entails. What is this sovereign bond trading? Well, look, there's two main aspects to the market. The first one is what we refer to as local market bond trading, This is where the issuer of the assets is issuing bonds denominated in the currency of that country. So, for example, Ghana issuing bonds in SETI, Kenya issuing bonds in shilling, Nigeria issuing bonds in Naira, etc. These are markets probably primarily dominated by onshore participants and where the investor, or certainly my investors who are offshore, participate are taking both the credit risk of the sovereign as well as the currency exposure because the fact they would have to buy the local currency in order to invest in these markets. But in many cases, because these domestic markets are not deep enough to satisfy all of the borrowing requirements of these countries, they typically also look to what we refer to as the international or hard currency markets, where the bond, the underlying bonds are issued in primarily dollars, sometimes euros, sometimes also sterling or yen. It's called the hard currency debt markets. And these are in notional terms much, much larger. And in this case, it's the issuing country that bears the currency risk in regards to the repayment, because obviously the investor is looking to get repaid in dollars, whereas the country's typical main source of revenue will be in their own domestic currency. We're very involved in both, and they both make up a large part of it, any African nation's budget financing. A large part, to what, what quantum are we talking about? How many African nations take on debt from these markets and sort of what quantum? Yeah, so I mean, to give you a sense, I mean, it's, it's all been very rapid change over the last 10 years. I mean, if you go back to, say, 2009, which was the one of the first ever euro bonds or hard currency external bonds from Senegal, and the market was absolutely in its infancy with, you know, very small transactions taking place. And fast forward to now, pretty much all of the major sub-Saharan and North African countries are issuing debt in these markets and often doing large multi-billion dollar financings every single time they issue. And certainly all of the, you know, major countries, Nigeria, Kenya, Ghana, well, obviously Zambia, as we're going to go on to talk about, uh, you know, as well as some of the smaller countries like Gabon, Senegal, they're all very active in the international marketplace now. And, uh, you know, the universe of euro bonds is exceeding, you know, $100 billion in total. Oh, really? That and who's investing in these, in these euro bonds? So it's all the typical credit, credit investors, people willing to take credit risk of 
all sorts of variety of borrowers. So the, what we're talking about here, the African space fits into a sort of region which is referred to as EMEA, Europe, Middle East and Africa, and covers all of the emerging borrowers in that region. Obviously includes borrowers from the former CIS countries, from uh, borrowers from the GCC region, and as well as sub-Saharan Africa. The investors are either local pension funds or primarily you know, international pension funds, insurance companies, mutual funds, private banks. It's essentially anybody who runs a large portfolio of risk who's willing to put a portion of that money into higher risk countries in order to generate some additional return in their portfolio. Because clearly in the current world where central banks through their monetary policy have caused rates to tend down towards zero or one to two percent, but that you still have these more high risk countries issuing dollar denominated bonds with coupons or yields, let's call it, you know, in the region of six, seven, eight, nine percent, you know, does attract a large investor base. Interesting. So really Main Street, normal retirees, their pensions funds invested in... All of the client base that I cover, if I was to go through the names, would be large, well-known, brand-named investment mm. fund that you would be familiar with. Great. And you've talked about some coupons and, and yields. You mentioned that these sovereign bond issuances are attractive because they offer a higher yield than you get in your savings bank in, in Europe or North America, typically. Yep. These yields fluctuate, though, don't they? And how, it's really coming on to the next question I want to put to you. How have these bonds been performing this year? This year has been a, you know, absolute rollercoaster, as you can imagine, with the uh, unfortunate events surrounding the coronavirus around the world. And so it's been an incredibly volatile year for the assets in Africa. To give you a sense, you know, right now, I would say that to put it some context in the yields available across the continent, if we, and again, we'll exclude Zambia for this discussion for now, Angola, which is the sort of next most stressed country, the yields on their bonds pay between 12 to 14%. And then one of the more perceived to be better managed countries on the continent, consider, say, Ivory Coast, the yields on their bonds probably down in the region of 6 to 7%. But yes, to go back to what you were asking, in the period of when the coronavirus first broke and there was a sort of blind panic that with the collapse in global growth, with the collapse in the movement of people, with the huge budget deficits that these countries are going to have to take on to try and ensure some sort of social stability and then the potential for widespread defaults across the region, yields probably went from those numbers we were talking in a range of, say, 7 to 12 as we are in now, I would say the range went all the way up where even a good quality name was paying 10% and some of the most stressed credits were yielding 25%. Wow. Um, but then as the year has gone on and the panic has abated, and all of these initiatives that, you know, I'm sure you're from very familiar with, all the debt service suspension initiatives, support from the World Bank, the various supports from the IMF, the supports from the G7 central banks around the world to get rates lower has caused a big recovery in yields and in fact only manifested that Zambia is, is the one country that has got itself into severe financial distress. So we'll come on to Zambia just now, but you mentioned the debt moratorium initiatives of the G20 and the IMF and how yeah. helpful they were in bringing some stability to these bond markets. Then just this week, Zambia makes the statement, I think the Minister of Finance speaking to um, bondholders direct, I presume, on a conference call on Tuesday, 
appeals for some form of moratorium because Zambia can't pay its interest payments on, yep. on these bonds or can't pay the, the yields, the coupons, if, that, if that's correct. And how will the bond market respond to that? Well, it's responded, it's actually in the last half an hour, it's responded quite negatively. So the bondholders have rejected the proposal from Zambia. And I, I can see that makes sense. Unfortunately, it appears that Zambia is being rather badly advised as to how to approach their relationships with the bondholders. I mean, clearly, Zambia's decline has been a long time coming. I mean, they've been in a period of stress now for you know several years. And this proposal that they made to investors in order to try and buy themselves six to seven months' time in order to try and get their affairs in order before undertaking a proper restructuring was essentially copied from a model that Ecuador used in their recent restructuring of their bonds. However, the situation Ecuador was in was not so severe in that they had much closer relationships with the IMF, and so therefore investors were willing to participate in the terms of their standstill agreement. And in the case of Zambia, the uh, situation therein is nowhere near as strong, and so investors have taken a pretty swift and pretty dismal view of this proposal. One of the problems, to put in broader context, one of the problems really with the whole concept of PSI, private sector initiative, in these debt restructurings is that whilst it's very easy for bilateral creditors to renegotiate debt, and I think it's obviously fantastic that on that basis so many of Paris Club lending has been swiftly renegotiated, but unfortunately external Eurobond, whichever we want to call it, debt, is written in a highly legal fashion that's very, very friendly towards the investor. The people who hold the bonds are very, very diverse and located all over the world, so it's hard to, to coerce them into a To corral group. them together. And also, because it's typically their money as opposed to governments voting with the money of the people, they're much, much less willing actually to take losses or deferrals on payments and, in fact, spend their lives very happily litigating to anybody that does try to not pay. And I think that, you know, Zambia are about to find this out as well, that unless investors are given some pretty hefty incentive to participate in a debt restructuring, they just play hardball because historically playing hardball has worked out very well for them. And the people that own these bonds are very familiar with going into restructurings. And as such, they need a lot of coercing in order to consider anything that might affect the value of their investments. But presumably default, everyone loses, don't they? What can the bondholder do in that situation? Clearly, clearly there's an element of brinksmanship about it. In a scenario where if a country goes into a proper default and the act of the default causes an additional economic collapse, mm. you know, you can see further losses in your assets, right? Which, you know, you only have to look mm. at Argentina as the most example of this last year, where when bonds went into default, you know, bonds started trading down at 25 cents, which is still, you know, whereas the Zambia bonds still trade at 50 cents because people do believe that mm. there will be of negotiated settlement but at mm. the same time in the interim that doesn't mean there's a lot of room for discussion and i think that yeah. zambia's proposal to put all payments on hold in return for just nothing other than goodwill was a little bit fanciful they needed to offer something a little bit more concrete to investors as to why they should undertake this Jim, you referenced the initiatives of um, G20 and IMF earlier this year in approving some debt moratorium for uh, many emerging markets, among them very many African countries. 
At the time, there was no requirement for restructuring of private debt. So there were some calls for that yep. to, to be considered. It's a complicated affair, I know, getting various disparate private bondholders to agree a moratorium or a restructuring of the debt. But just Tuesday, we had Zambia's finance minister on a conference call with bondholders, I believe, in which he appealed for bondholders to agree a moratorium, saying that Zambia was unable to make good on its debt service repayments and required a, a holiday, some form of debt relief for six months, I think it is. What do you know of that call on, on Tuesday and what's been the response of bondholders? Yeah, so I actually was on the call. It was obviously very well presented. They've clearly been very well primed and, and made sure that they were presenting the right kind of information to bondholders. But at the same time, the general content was rather, how can I put it, you know, not that but realistic. It in the sense, it's slightly, they are trying to convince investors that in a very short period of time, they will have reached some sort of debt restructuring agreement with China regarding all the borrowing they have from China. They will finally engage meaningfully with the IMF in order to get them on side with potential future funding, and that they will have a reasonable proposal in place for bondholders that they would find appealing in order to term out or haircut their existing eurobond debt and that this is all going to take place in six to seven months in where the latter part is in 2021 which is the year in the lead up to the next general election and i think that investors kind of view this as a slightly fanciful program timeline of events and we do worry that the situation for zambia is looking rather precarious and what does that portend for other sovereigns, particularly African sovereigns? My take is that if we're letting just reinforce for the sovereigns to clearly to spend all of their time and resources renegotiating bilateral debt wherever they can, but at the mm. same time sending the message constantly that they will look to make whole all of their eurobond debt. And you see a classic case example of Angola. They've done the most fantastic job of renegotiating all of their uh, bilateral exposures. They have made very good relationships with the IMF and in fact just been granted additional disbursements that no one expected they would get. And at the same time, bent the message to Eurobond holders that they will do whatever they can to try and make sure they get paid. And I think that every other country will try to view that model because unfortunately, yeah. I'm not saying this is right, but unfortunately, as we've discussed, when you start defaulting on Eurobond debt, you just start walking into armies of lawyers and all sorts. It's not to say that if further down the road, that, say, for example, in a scenario where this corona situation persists for much longer than most people's base case currently has, and that if countries continue to get into further distress and that their funding needs next year continue to worsen, Eurobond holders are realistic and clearly it gets to that point. I'm sure they too would consider some sort of more voluntary restructuring. But the message is very clear from them that they're going to blast domino to fall. They will fight for their rights until it's absolutely screamingly obvious that they have to act. And is there anything that, that the Zambians have done in the last six months that has given you grounds for comfort or hope or optimism? Uh, unfortunately not, no. It's a real shame. It's, it's just like a sort of slow motion train crash where they give very polished presentations. They say the right things. They do their part to try and assuage investors. 
and then time passes and in reality nothing actually happens and all that happens meanwhile is that the quacha continues to depreciate the reserve situation doesn't improve and then just slowly you get to the point where you're literally running out of money and then you get to the situation right now where you make a, an appeal to bondholders to try and help and as, as we mentioned you know the initial response from bondholders is no way show me something more interesting and you know it's not to say that a deal won't get done i'm sure a deal will get done at some point but at the moment there we're a long way away and how big an entity is china in this equation were there questions on the conference call about the amount of debt owed to china by zambia this is the funny thing because many people on the call are expecting the usual format which would be a presentation followed by q and a and on this particular call there was a presentation swiftly by them signing off so there was no q and a and so that question that you've talked about is exactly the one that dominates investors minds and basically investors are saying look until we have some clarity on your true indebtedness with china on what your intentions are for restructuring that then we're not going to have a conversation about restructuring our debt Jim, thank you for those insights. We're fortunate to have someone who was actually on that that call with bondholders on Tuesday. It's been a pleasure to speak with you and to learn a little bit more about the sovereign debt markets and and what's happening particularly in an African context. So thanks so much, Jim Croft. Pleasure. Thanks for having me along.